uh, all right, so uh, let's call it. This is uh, <laughs> this is Project Cinema Cinema. What is it? Cinema Project Projects? No, it's Project A Plus. Cin- cinema. No, I think it's Cinema Project Projects. I think we. I thought we agreed on this. Nope. C- cinema Projects uh, Quintet. Yep. <laughs> no, I'm just just kidding, guys. This is your uh, favorite little podcast. Um, Project A+. Plus. Uh, my name is Hunter with an H, and your name is... Hugh with an H. Yep, and... Uh, the two H's. Um, what? The two H's. That's the that's what our fans call us. The two H's of man. Uh, so, uh, what what do we do on the show? Uh, we talk about movies, sometimes our lives, then more movies again. Why do you sound so depressed, Hugh? Has there been a depressing uh, development in your life? Well, I'm glad you asked. <coughs> Today marks a new beginning, a new era for Project A+, better title pending. <laughs> and not just because it is a new season. By the way, this is season four now. Wait, wait no, we didn't agree to this. Yes, yes, it's, it's happening. I've announced it. Too late. <laughs> so season three was only one episode? Yeah, because I didn't do a theme song because I couldn't be bothered, so I just made, like, random Star Wars noises <laughs> for the shitty Star Wars episode. And okay. there was a proper new theme song for season four. All right, season four it is. But the real reason we are in a new dawn is that this is uh, the first episode that, of the wait, wait, podcast. Can I guess? Can I guess? Can I guess? Can I guess? Fine. Is it that we've joined the Greek fascist organization? Um, what is it called? New Dawn? Golden Dawn. All right. No. Golden Dawn. No. Okay. Well, I, I did do that. I just want to... Okay. But that's just you. Yeah, that's just me. And you, the I, reason... I, signed you up. I signed you up. I signed you up too. But the reason the collective we, as in you and me, are in a new dawn is that this is the first episode of the podcast Project A+, better title pending, in which, at the time of recording, both of its hosts are gainfully employed. What? No way, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> the position I'm in as we speak is a position I applied for half-heartedly maybe a few months ago and got no response, right? <laughs> did, you, did you get the job in the sandwich factory? Uh, 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 I'm not going to spoil it. <laughs> what do you mean spoil it? An identical role was uh, advertised again recently mm. and I half-heartedly resubmitted the exact <laughs> same application, expecting uh. the exact same result mm-hmm. now yesterday which is monday and the timeline is important so follow along i'm following i, I okay. received a text message at <laughs> seven in the morning which uh-huh. i noticed when i woke up at eight in the morning mm. now the text message advised me that my resume was suitable and to call this number to arrange an interview now this was a surprise right Mm-hmm. I did have some doubts about whether I was willing or even able to do this kind of work, so I flirted with the idea of ignoring it and resuming my kingly mm. box wine and potato chip fueled lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That has been so beneficial to this podcast. Mm-hmm. But my better angels prevailed, and I decided to call back. Wow. Guess what happened? Wow. I'm so. What, what happened? There was no response. I went straight to the message bank. (laughs) 
And, you know, when it goes to message bank, I'm never pre prepared to leave a voicemail. So I didn't. I just hung up, right? Sure. Once again, I was tempted to give up. I called the number, as they said. They didn't answer. What more could I possibly do? Mm -hmm. But something moved me, Hunter. Something moved me wow. to try again about 15 minutes later. Did my spirit move you to try again? Maybe. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was you moving through me. Oh. But anyway, whatever, whatever it was, this time on the second call, I got through. Mm. I had a brief conversation with the owner of the phone number mm. and an interview was arranged for that very day. This is still Monday. Wow. This is a quick turnaround. At 1pm in the inner city suburb of Collingwood. Mm. And so I braved the heat. And the smoke haze from distant but not that distant bushfires. <laughs> and I attended the interview. Mm -hmm. It went okay and I was to be given a trial. One full eight hour shift. Wow. To see if wow. I cut the mustard. And perhaps more wow. importantly, to see if I even wow. liked mustard. If you put must, If you could put mustard on sandwiches. It sounds like you know where I'm going with this, but... <laughs> oh, this is... <laughs> Please continue. And the trial, the trial was to commence the very next day, which, if you know your days of the week, is Tuesday. <laughs> ah, but I can already feel your confusion. <laughs> Hugh, I hear you ask. My understanding is that it is currently 12.41 in Melbourne, and it is Tuesday, the day of your shift. Shouldn't you be working instead of podcasting? Well, I managed to honour both commitments. I speak to you now, having completed some hours ago my trial shift. Which just happened to commence at the motherfucking witching hour. <laughs> oh boy. So let me just replay my Monday for you. <laughs> you woke up at 12. I woke up at 8am, <laughs> attended an interview at 1pm, attended a refugee advocacy planning meeting at 6pm, <laughs> which I was sorely tempted to miss in favour of sleeping. God damn. And then, come midnight, I worked through the whole night. God damn. And I very, very nearly didn't. Not during the shift itself, but before I left, late Monday night, I looked at my bed and the box of wine beside it. And I thought, what am I doing? Why am I forsaking a night of drinking and watching, t <laughs> and watching TV in bed? What could possibly be more important than that? But somehow, somehow I forced myself out into the foggy night air. And by foggy, I mean smoggy because, you know, smoke. And as smoke I stood... Fog, or smog smoke? Hmm? Is smog smoke? I made that assumption. <laughs> it's like pollution causing fog-like effects. And pollution yeah. would include smoke, so... I'm assuming that's where the SM comes from. I guess. But I don't know. That, that was always my assumption. Anyway, as I stood at the bus stop, like 10.40 at night, I think it was at this point, all I thought about was walking straight home. And as I sat on the bus, all I thought about was getting off the bus, crossing the road, and catching the bus bound in the opposite direction, the direction of my home. Wow. There, there is no true, true or work experience, so... And then, as I walked from the bus stop in Collingwood, all I thought was... All I thought about was, rather, was doubling back, crossing the road, and catching the bus home. But somehow... I arrived at the building, 
42 minutes early because of the bus schedule. Mm-hmm. Would anyone even be there at this hour? The door was open, like they said it would be, and I was to go inside and announce my arrival or something. Right. And I went into the first section and there was no one there. Then I went into the second section, no one there. I could hear voices somewhere in the building, but I was unsure of the route to take. It's quite a labyrinthine complex. Uh, and one of the doors had a button labelled emergency, which I, I think I remember being told I was supposed to press to open it, but I wasn't sure enough to risk triggering an actual emergency procedure. So I chickened out. So picture me wandering impotently in these empty spaces. Again. Sometimes leaving, sometimes returning to trace the same path. Uh-huh. Then finally I left for one last time and sat outside the main door. Maybe someone would exit or someone would enter and I could ask them what to do. A couple of minutes passed. Fuck this, I thought. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't even want to be here. Mm-hmm. I hope the trains are still running. I'm, I'm leaving. I, my mind was made up. Better angels be damned. <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm seriously, uh, this is too much hassle already. I hate this. Uh, so I pulled out my phone to check uh, if there were any trains running. And then suddenly a door burst open. And a genial mm. Kiwi voice exclaimed, Fuck, you scared the shit out of me. You must be Hugh. That's a good impression. I take your word for it. Four and a half hours later, on the only break during the entire shift, I sat on a stump in front of a car park and stared bleakly at smoky Collingwood while I contemplated my future. The break was half an hour. What? That's right. That's That's not very long. Eight or more hours, depending on demand, and a half hour break. Wow. And all I thought on that break was there's no fucking way I'm accepting this job, even if they offer it. But a few hours later, at the end of my shift, accept it, I did. So, what is this mysterious job? <laughs> Can you guess? Yeah. Um, was it working at the movie theater? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, what, what other jobs did you apply to? You did that writing one that you didn't seem half-hearted, you seemed half-hearted about? Yeah, this is one of the night shift writing jobs. <laughs> uh, was it the, the scam one that you almost agreed to, to do? Yep, that's the one. Uh... <laughs> no, no, oh, you, you want to know what the job at, is? You are working at the sandwich factory. <laughs> Making sandwiches for the man. Making sandwiches for the man while the man sleeps. How does it feel to be part of the working class again? Making the sandwiches and the wraps and the salads that the man eats on the way to work or during catered business lunches. And by making, I mean fumbling with my set ingredient before a conveyor belt with zero prior training. Or cutting things in half. Or placing fully assembled sandwiches on a different conveyor belt to be wrapped. Or slotting wraps into a tightly packed cardboard casing. Uh, uh Uh-huh. Or fixing labels. Every single sandwich, a horror show of composition. Cross-contamination, an absolute certainty. 
Well, tell me what uh, a company it is, so I, I know not to... Uh... Oh, I'll probably get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> we, the workers, toil through the night in our hairnets and our gowns, so that when the sun rises, the man may have his terrible sandwich, or terrible wrap, or terrible salad, or terrible panini. I could see them on their way to their nine-to-five office jobs as I caught the bus home. Anyway, so that's my qualifier for why my contributions to our forthcoming discussions on... Little Women, Quintet, and She Hate Me will be so incoherent. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I don't believe they're going to be more incoherent than uh, normal, i got to say. But, you know. I mean, that's possibly true. Um, anyway, another exciting development. There's so many exciting developments. Start of a new season. We're both employed. We just got an offer of sponsorship. Um, what? I, mean, I literally just received an email saying... We're interested in sponsorship in relation to your podcast. Uh, somehow I don't believe you. Except it's one of those scammy middlemen services. <laughs> so it's not an actual sponsor uh, reaching out to us. It's a it's a go between party that will find us sponsors. Ah, I'm sure in exchange for something. Probably money. Probably money. <laughs> But I'd love to see them try. <laughs> it's almost worth it now. I've got the money for it. Uh, okay, great. So um, what what films are we talking about on this podcast? What thread have we left off for, I don't know, how many, how many weeks has it been since we've got one of these, this series that we're coming back to? At least four. And what is the name of this series again? We, the Worst one? of the Best or something? I don't know. So, how about turkeys from eagles? That'll do. And what... That'll do, Pig. What eagles are we talking about today? We're talking about the eagles Robert Altman and mm. Spike Lee. One of whom I've... This is only the second of his movies I've seen. Mm. And the other of whom, I think this is only the third or fourth movie of his I've seen. So. Mm. Um, I think I've seen a handful oh. of each. Uh, in this case, we're doing Spike Lee's, uh, 20... 2004. 2004 movie, um, She Hate Me. And in the other corner, we got Robert Altman's 1979 sci-fi epic quintet. Mm. Um, but we'll get into that, uh, after our great... First, got to talk about our, um... Our main feature today. Reels on Meals. No, we're not we're not doing that anymore. Did you literally jettison those in the last episode? All of them? Uh, except for Burn yeah, Hollywood all, Burn all and them. Bonus Features? No, no. We're, we're getting rid of Burn Hollywood Virto. <laughs> really? Yeah. But I, I think this is a 30-minute podcast. <laughs> but the, it kind of made it at least a slightly different podcast to other film podcasts. In that okay, it had all these terrible Hollywood bits Bird. before we spoke about films. <laughs> but let's let's cut all the other stupid garbage. But I think we need something in its place. We can't just be reductive. No, I, don't, I, think, I think we just need to get rid of it. It <laughs> may not be on this episode, because we've already opened with my dope story about getting a job. I mean, that 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 makes up for a lot. But next episode, we need a new segment. Why don't we just have, why don't we just have personal corner? <laughs> Stan's Where... soapbox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where one of us talks about whatever for five minutes. No, Stanley. Every yeah, week. yeah. We, we have to do an imitation of the long dead Stanley. 
So uh, let's get on with our main feature this week, which is the new released film by Greta Gerwig, uh, which is a new adaptation of the book Little Women. Both of us, maybe just me, uh, spoke about a uh, a certain non-desire to see this movie on our best of 2019 episode. Is that correct? Yes, you certainly did. I said I was maybe a little reticent about seeing the film, um, although I was kind of interested. And uh, the opportunity came up to see it, so I saw it. And then you chose to do it on the podcast anyway, because I'm assuming you also had an opportunity to see it. No, I thought that my girlfriend wanted to go see it, um, but then she went to Florida, and then I was stuck having to watch it anyway. <laughs> uh, so, Little Women is about the March family who live in Massachusetts. Uh, and, and after which you're named. Yep. Uh, and whom are... It's, it's the middle of the Civil War. Their father has marched off. Uh, he's, volu- he's volunteered for the Union Army. And leaving the their mother, yeah, leaving their mother to watch over them. They are four girls. There is Beth. Each one is talented in a specific way. There is Beth, who is good at music and quiet. She's talented is... at dying. <laughs> That's not a spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is Joe, who is talented at being the main character and also at writing. Yes. There is. Amy, who is talented uh, at burning, talented at yeah, and doing doing uh, art, uh, and there is Meg, who's talented at being attractive, <laughs> and uh, all these little women, uh, they fight, they go through life, um, and there's some other characters <laughs> like Timothy Chalamet, uh, who plays a character named Laurie or Teddy Lawrence. Theodore Lawrence, uh, who is uh, <coughs> next door neighbor and potential paramour um, for Joe. Uh, there is his grandfather, who is was destroyed after the death of his daughter and the betrayal of his son. Um, there is the tutor to Laurie, whose name I forget, <laughs> John, who <laughs> um, eventually becomes a love love interest to Billie Jean, uh, love interest to, um, uh, Meg, and, yes, but, uh, as I lay this film out, um, uh, oh, and Beth gets Scarlet Fever or something like that, and uh, but as I'm laying this film out, uh, it, it is betraying the structure that Greta Gorick has imposed upon the novel, which is to say it starts in the present day so-called where Joe has left Massachusetts and is living in New York City, trying to hack it in the big city as a writer. Um, and she receives word. I mean, she has a brief flirtation with uh, Louis Garrel, um, playing himself. 
Uh, and then she receives word that her sister Beth has come ill again, and she returns to Massachusetts, and some stuff happens. But that's basically the movie. Mm-hmm. Do I need to do I need to detail anything else, or is that a sufficient plot summary? Nope. Okay. Um, we should mention that it is based on a beloved novel. Yeah, which is why we feel like we don't need to get into it that much. Written by? Uh, Wiza May Alcott. Correct. Um, and this film, this novel has been adapted. Uh, I don't know how exactly it does. Right, let's, why don't we play a game where we both try to guess how many times this, this novel has been adapted? Four? That's mm-hmm. how many times you think? Including uh, by Australia's own Gillian Armstrong. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that, uh, according to Wikipedia, it has been adapted five times. So. Don't. Including this one? <laughs> including this one. But I wasn't so including four this other one. I was, in, I was speaking of okay. the previous Well, uh, if we count um, the four animated... or the Sorry, the four American television shows. <laughs> and also, there's two <laughs> Japanese anime shows... Which I I I want to watch this really badly. This sounds completely wow. I wonder what this is like. Um, God, this sounds crazy. Anyway, so it's been adapted a billion times, uh, and perhaps that's one of the reasons I'm so reticent to watch it. Um, but none of that matters because Hugh, what did you think of the movie Little Women? Can we just establish have either of us either seen or read a version of Little Women prior to this one? Uh, nope. Me either. So, what did you think? What did I think? What did you think? Uh, I actually enjoyed this. Yeah. Well, that's disappointing. Hmm. I had a couple of issues, which we'll get to. Mm. I think one of the one of the challenges of restaging or, or refilming a classic work of literature, right? is that you have to confront one way or another the parts that may not have aged well. Mm. The blind spots, very often the racism or sexism that that might be present in an antiquated work. Mm. Whatever it is, you're dealing with a work from a society with with different and usually less advanced values Mm. than that of our own, right? And you kind of have to confront it. I, I will push against you... Studying history up as a progressive arc, you. <laughs> anyway, that that being said, you have to accept the fact that the values that are present in the original work are different than perhaps the values that are present in the society. Yeah, I did say usually yeah. less advanced, so there was some wiggle room there. Anyway, you you do have to confront these things in a different way than you do when you're just like reading the original work, right, or responding to the text. Because that's kind of contextualizing where it's come from, but like restaging it is a is a different beast. I think mm. you're, you're making a decision to present a new version or adaptation of this work, and you're kind of required to make different decisions about it. To choose between fidelity to the text, yeah, and yeah, yeah, fidelity yeah. to contemporary values, and you know you have to justify your choice either way, right? To SJW nonsense. Now, as you've already spelt out in your introduction, Gerwick has made some some bold choices here. Even as I'm informed, she's quite faithful to the source material overall. Mm. That's my understanding for everyone who's read it. Mm. Apparently the ending is much different. Ah, certainly, yes, I'm aware of that. The the non-linear structure, um, which is obviously not present in the original novel, 
appears to me to be a deliberate attempt to reframe certain aspects of the narrative. For example, like um, the relationship between Joe and Laurie, which may, I mean, we're, I'm only speculating because I haven't read the original work, but I'm assuming you're kind of kept in suspense as that relationship develops as to whether they, they are going to end up together and what Joe's feelings are. But the way that Gerwig has structured that is to show you exactly what happens at the end of that arc, the fact that Joe rejects Timothy Chalamet. It, it kind of puts it all on him and it makes him seem more like an entitled prick in the eventual scene where he gets heartbroken. So she's doing stuff like that with, with the source material. And I also think that the nonlinear structure, which is not simply like present day and then flashback and then it progresses yeah. from there, it goes back and forth a lot. And in a way that is kind of uh, not, not always signposted. Mm. As someone who is approaching this for the first time, it worked for me. And I think it has, mm. has the effect of emphasising the bond between the sisters, the value and emotion of, of the memory of each other in this almost time-defying way. Like, it's like it constantly exists because we always return to it. Mm. Um, we, we get glimpses of, like, the bleak futures that some of the heroines will endure, at least temporarily or eternally in the case of Beth, to, to the honeyed light of their formative years as sisters growing up in the march home uh-huh. and that that kind of feels like the centerpiece of the film is is that bond between the sisters which you know is, is an obvious um, observation but I think the way Gerwig has structured the story really heightens that I, I, I felt at times like it wanted me to to be attached to them and I kind of pushed against that a little bit because I felt the strain but mm-hmm. for the most part I enjoyed the performances it worked for me what about you? Well, before I talk about how I felt about this film, I want to talk a little bit about my uh, rather tortured theatrical experience watching this, right? Yes, please. So, <clears throat> I arrived at this film maybe 20 minutes beforehand, which I grant is a little early, okay? And I went and got some pretzel bites, you know, I wanted to have a little snack while I was eating. And so I uh, was going to go into the theater and sit down and read my book and eat some pretzel bites. And just enjoy myself in, in the in the company of my best friend, the projection <laughs> projectionist and the projector. Um, but I was prevented to do so because for some reason there was a hold up in the in the theater where the film was about to start, uh, which I think it may have something to do by the with the fact that this particular movie theater hosts a Christian ministry on Sundays. I saw it on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, so I resent the fact that there were Christians who prevented me from enjoying my little lovely experience of going to the movie theater early <laughs> and eating my pretzel bites and reading my, my Jonathan Rosenbaum book. Uh, so that was, that was the first sort of red flag that something might be amiss, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so after all the Christians shuffled out, I, uh, you know, went into the theater. Uh, there already had arisen a sizable crowd. I don't know why this theater was so packed, but it definitely was, um, and uh, I was like, okay, whatever, who cares? So I sat in my seat and uh, took out my book. I was attempting to uh, get through a very sort of dense um, paragraph on the films of uh, 
uh, Jean-Marie Straub and Danielle Houlet, okay? Mm-hmm. When all of a sudden, uh, a bunch of, <laughs> a group of four very loud Australian <laughs> people walked in, and uh, they talked a lot, and then they sat in front of me, and uh, this <clears throat> first um, thing that happened was that they forced, because uh, the big theaters in, in New York City and presumably all of America have switched to reserved seating, which in theory is a good thing, but in practice just means that people really argue a lot yeah. um, during movies. So, um, I uh, witnessed them fight with this old woman who had a bunch of stuff, uh, and she moved back to my row, um, which, is, which will come into play later. Um, so these Australian women were sitting in front of me, and... So they're all women? Yes. Are you sure they were Australian? Um, I'm not 100% sure, but that's definitely what their accent sounded like. Okay. It didn't sound like they were British. I mean, they could have been... Or Kiwi. Yeah. It seemed like... I I, I got the vibe that they were Australian. Yeah. But I don't don't know. Uh, I can't say for sure. I didn't didn't ask them. So that was the first annoying thing. I guess there's two annoying things at this point, right? We got old lady. Uh, We got rowdy Australian (laughs) women. Yep. So, um, it, it's, it's the trailers have all gone, you know, the movie, movie's about to start, right? And all of a sudden, these two young people, uh, come into the theater. It's, it, the, the production companies have come on the screen at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and these two young people come in, uh, go up to the row that's like two in front of me, and then loudly argue with the old people who are sitting there about the fact that... This is my uh, seat. You know, they're sitting, yeah, exactly. Uh, which it turns out they are in the wrong theater, but it's so nice how they argue with them for about five minutes, which is great. Very <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> uh, I think because I again just just this is pure theorizing here. I believe that because the uh, Christian ministry that had performed in here uh, kept the lights on during the entire time, <laughs> that uh, that the lights didn't go down when the movie started, and someone had to go out of the theater. <laughs> to get them down after a certain point so that was great uh maybe maybe 20 minutes into the movie i realized i had to go to the bathroom uh, but because this old woman was sitting on the end of the road she had all this stuff and i did not want to like walk over her things or like you know get into a fight with her because i had to go to the bathroom and you couldn't exit the aisle the other way because i was i was uh, i was pretty close to the other end i didn't want right, to like right. climb over a bunch of people too because it was it was like packed like there's yeah, okay, almost like yeah. no empty gotcha. spaces so I had to go to the bathroom. I, I spent the entire time <laughs> needing to pee. <laughs> um, and then what? what uh, so not only did the, the four Australian women who were sitting in front of me talk during the entire film, despite multiple shushings, there was another group of people behind me who also spent the entire movie talking. <laughs> so you had it in stereo. Or yeah, actually 360-degree surround. Um, so, uh, and... Uh, probably, probably, so I was, you know, on my last drawing, probably, this is, this, there is one part of that, that, the, the, the final offense really made me laugh, though, which was, uh, during the scene where Beth dies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, someone had apparently fallen asleep, okay? Mm-hmm. During the, the scene where you learned that she died, and, um, so, you know, so that, the, the emotional music is played or whatever, and, um, this guy just starts snoring in the middle of it. <laughs> Uh, so uh so uh, uh 
you know, less than optimal uh, viewing experiences for this film. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I think I've been on the record of the fact that I, I dislike costume dramas of this sort. Um, I think they're pretty... I think, I think there is a reactionary character to them, no matter, like, how, like, you know, modern they seem. Mm. You know what I mean? And I really am fucking sick of every other trailer being for, like, some shitty Jane Austen adaptation or some garbage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Give me give me modern movies. It's just a it's a facile attempt to retreat from the present. So uh, you you messaged me after I had, had told you that I had a really terrible theatrical experience, um, and said if I could evaluate the film fairly, and I think I can, Hugh, um, because just <laughs> uh, despite all of all of this bad stuff, besides my general dislike for this genre, despite the being uh, a- ambiguous and you know, Hugh, when the first, like, 20 minutes were happening, I was kind of like, oh, boy. But uh, I have to say, Hugh, I think I love this film, so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the moment where the guy stored, I was I was crying while he stored, so I was crying and laughing at the same time. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think this film is, is pretty much, like, perfect in my eyes, so there we go. Yeah, I got teary, too. Um, I, basically, basically, like the last like thirty minutes, I I was just crying the entire time. Um, I don't know why I was so emotional at this point, um, but I just found it. I I really thought that the way she structured it really worked, uh, and I I enjoy the way that she, you know it's it's you could uh, this is a film that's definitely. I mean, there's always the question when you watch adaptations of how does a director impose their own vision on it, right? Yeah. And I think that it's it's very clear, despite not being familiar at all in the source material, like what elements that she brought to the surface in this. Yes. And uh, specifically, like reading about how she changed the ending, which uh, sort of emphasizes the fact that um, you know, because in the in the original book, uh, the, the way the film plays the ending is it is it plays the ending for the book where she marries this uh uh french dude um she marries a uh, louis Grell, yeah uh who is this like sort of um negging french professor who she meets with briefly hmm. um and in the book that's the ending that she runs off of the carriage and then, and then gets it but what girl is doing and from what i understand is kind of true to uh the author's biography as well so there's like an interesting mixture of of adding you know the own biography, and then also adding what Gerwig personally thinks is valuable about the text into it. Uh, And I found sort of that imposition to be deeply moving as well, in a way. Yeah. Um, And I just thought this film was really terrific. I I can't really think of anything I really disliked about it, so... (laughs) Uh, if we had been making, if I had seen it before I made my top 10 list, it probably would have gone pretty high to the, close to the top, so. It would have made my top 10, too, definitely, given that, like, 70% of it was, like, three and a half star films. Um, I found the ending maybe a little bit too cute, even if I liked the idea of it. I thought it was well executed, so I don't know what to say. I I kind of liked what she was trying to do, but I didn't feel that Mm. there was any sort of satisfying emotional conclusion to the story mm. which was a very emotional story kind of leading up to that point i think it's kind of the point in a way but like i mean i don't mean emotional in the sense like i just wanted to focus on the love story between you were connected, her and the French to, you were connected to the ending the same way yeah 
Well, I, I definitely was. <laughs> but that so. might be something that would change for me on rewatching the film. I think knowing that 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 ending is is coming, it sort of it makes the thread of her like wanting to be independent and writing like more clear. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, going is is shifting is like de-emphasizing the romantic stakes of her life in mm-hmm. favor of her finding her voice as a writer above all else. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think the way that this film um, is about art and writing too is really interesting as well. Yeah, I think that this this film really captures her own relationship with the text in a way, mm. and I think it it sort of provides this way in which you know someone can approach. Uh, order literature as well. And I, I thought that I thought that was pretty moving too, to be honest. So, yeah, good movie. But but Hugh, do I do I think that Todd Phillips deserved an Academy Award nomination over her? Of course. Yes, of course. This uh, is a good movie, but it's not Joker. It's not Joker. Yeah, come on. Let's not get our shit twisted. This is a good we, women's picture. Yeah. What it, what is what is better than uh than Bucky Joker? Uh, anyway, what were we talking about? <laughs> Even if I think that this came at the expense of maybe the, the emotional resonance at the end of the story, I did kind of like that that uh, like copyright um, sequence played like mm-hmm. a sketch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at the end yeah. of the film, but I thought it was quite it was quite funny. Yeah, and that's that's something else about that's that's good about this film. It's consistently pretty, like you know, funny and entertaining. But not at the, it's a, it, I think it balances the the humor with the. I don't know. It makes it like feel like natural in a way. Yeah, you know, it's so so expertly directed. I know. I totally agree. It's beautiful to look at. The cinematography is great, but it's so well controlled tonally and just on a structural level, how effective the way she plays with time is. It's so precisely pressed. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think uh, this is a sequence I think it's been commented on a lot, but the, the bit where it, like, replays the same, like, shot structure, basically, when she goes on the stairs to see Beth. Just, just, just expertly done. And even just scenes that, like, I could imagine being in other lesser period films, like the, the scene yeah. in which she's dancing outside the ballroom with um, Laurie, Joe, yeah. that is. Yeah. That is so beautifully realized that I, I yeah, found that is. quite moving. So did I. Even if I could imagine the same type of scene, you know, being in like a really mediocre costume drama. I could see that. And I think this film is really, it, it really nails sort of the, this, this, it really places them specifically in the society that she's depicting too, you know? Mm. Like it's not a film that is unconscious to like, which a lot of costumes are, dramas are, I think, to like class and race, you know? I, I did have a bit of an issue with the way that it dealt with, um, you know, the unspoken issue of the African-American experience during the Civil War. Sure. Sure, yeah, it did, it did kind of feel like a half measure in a way where it's like... It's oh, like, we better like... address this and in a way that maybe the novel didn't, I'm assuming. Well, I don't know. I was reading about uh, Louisa Bay Alcott and it said that she was an abolitionist, so... But yeah, it just depends on how that's that's portrayed in the novel. Because this, that, did make me wanna, this, this did make me want to read the book, which is... Honestly, me too. Thing. Um, um, but the way, the way that they deal with the African-American experience and the issue of slavery and even just, you know, the equivalent in the North outside yeah. of slavery, the, the mother played by Laura Dern yeah. is, you know, she's a classic SJW. <laughs> she, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's true. <laughs> um, and uh, no, she's a, she's like a bleeding heart, right? And she's she's helping the poor. She gives she gives away her family's meals to to help those less mm. fortunate. I mean, there's like the 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 conceit that they live in between, in the middle of two different classes, uh, the upper class yeah. and the lower class, and that kind of lower middle class. Yeah. Well, it's interesting is that they're also sort of, like, deprived beyond that, too, you yeah. know, in a way. Um, but, yeah. but it's funny when they talk about, like, you know, being at all economically marginalized when you look at the house and how beautiful everything is. And <laughs> but anyway. That's the way people live back then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, imagine, like, you couldn't imagine living in a place like that, like, now. <laughs> no. Yeah, um, the houses are really beautiful in this film. Yeah. <laughs> I also like that, like... You know, they're not wealthy, but they're, like, next door. <laughs> the two other houses in their neighborhood are, like, a huge mansion. And it's just, like, horrible little shack. Mm. Uh, but anyway. It was like Parasite. <laughs> uh, um, this is better than Parasite. But anyway, anyway, Laura Dern is, like, um, volunteering somewhere. And she's giving, she's giving supplies to those who need it. And there's an African-American woman there. And there's, like, a, a comment where she says... I'm so ashamed, you know, of how we've treated you. Mm. And then uh, the rejoinder from the woman is, well, you should still be ashamed because it's still happening. Or something like that, whatever it was. And then she does, like, a knowing, like, I know, in, like, a Laura Dern kind yeah. of way. <laughs> it, it is kind of, like, hard. I mean, obviously, oh, it's, it's, like, not the, Yeah, the, the challenge of dealing with this without derailing the whole story is... Yeah. Is, is, yeah, it's a difficult thing to do. And I don't really, you know... Um, Begrudge, it just, it, but, but not to not to say that it's not like um, problematic or whatever, you know. But that but there is a challenge to it. Yeah, especially because like the the only two like direct references to it are that scene, and then at the end when Joe starts up a school for um, kids. Well, that's part of the that's part of like the 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 ending that she's written though. No, but yeah. the kids like uh, notably yeah. African American. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I mean. She, you know, reading about her uh, Lisa May Alcott's life, apparently her family was part of the Underground Railroad, so... Mm, there you go. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting yeah. that, like, you know, a lot of the book was inspired by her own upbringing, but yeah. she was actually... She actually grew up much, much poorer than the March family. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I thought this... Uh, just, I just thought it was a really beautiful film. Me too. Um, and I'm really glad that I watched it. I'm glad that, uh, doing this podcast forced me to get over my own prejudices against this genre and, uh, women in general, watch this movie. Yep. Yeah. Now I love little women and that's it. So no big women. Mm. I can't watch, um, Laura Dern in anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I love Laura Dern. <laughs> you shut up. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do think the the one part of this movie that I thought, this isn't a flaw exactly, but when Bob Odenkirk showed on screen, oh. I was I was instantly reminded of uh, Mr. Show. The 15th, no, the fifteen seventy to Paris. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, just because, in the same way that the the comedians and that the film are just seem like randomly cast. No, Bob Odenkirk is more. He has the right face to be in this time period. So I, I but I think better. I think his presence is extremely distracting to anyone who's familiar mm. with his sketch comedy yeah. work in particular yeah it is kind of a weird choice just to plug him into this like because you kind of need it but i guess you kind of do need like a big 
start. But that's what I mean. It's it's similar where you're like you watch you're watching this like you know in the fifth Tony Paris and like you know Tony Hale just appears on screen. You're like wait, what what's happening? So. Uh, but there is a, there is something that's extra reminiscent of Mr. Show about Bob Odenkirk with like mutton chops. Yeah, but I do think I do think he has the right sort of face to fit this time period. Mm. So I kind of understand why she would cast him in that role, but it is distracting. And it's not really a role; it's just it's a brief presence in the narrative. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I honestly I don't think he's a great actor. No, but he he's not really. Re- required to do anything in this movie so no but i yeah. just think in general i think he's not a bad presence and i understand why people mm. cast him i just don't think he's like um, a great technical actor i i can't say i have a, a, enough experience of him besides like mr show to really say one way or the other i didn't really watch breaking bad or uh better call Saul. yeah or undone was that the latest thingamajig that he did yeah i also didn't want i haven't watched that that you did i did um, okay, so I, I think I would give this movie my highest recommendation. Your highest? Uh, two thumbs up. Wow. Both thumbs. Is that our new rating system? A painted, Yeah, it's our, our unique t- totally original system. thumbs rating system. <laughs> uh, what, what? How many throat cancers would you give it? Um, who has throat cancer? Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'd give it five throat kits instead of five. Cool. Um, yeah, just a, just a really well done film. I don't know the same besides that. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I just agree that it's just so, uh, expertly crafted, let's say. And it's, it is ridiculous that they, they gave an Oscar nomination to, to Joker it's uh, who who else? I, uh, I just know it was Oscars? bad. I haven't really looked into the details. <laughs> should should we do some Oscar talk on here? Yeah, all right. Let's let's quickly switch to Oscar right. talk. So uh, so uh, this is gonna be our uh, recurring segment for the next month or so um, when we talk <laughs> about the Oscars. Uh, let's see. Okay. I do like how people are like so consistently disappointed every year, as if they expect. <laughs> yeah, I don't know different. why you would be surprised. From the Academy uh, right. that gave Green Book the top prize only last year. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna read you the uh, the Best Picture nominations. Okay. Uh, ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ford v Ferrari. <laughs> Is that yep. really nominated for Best Picture? <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, now, real real shocker here: The Irishman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's not bad. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, no, no thanks. Uh, <laughs> no, no, Rabbit. Joker, Joker. Yes, please. Which is my, which is, which is, which would be my choice to win because I think it'd be really funny. If Sight unseen, easily the best film. Of yeah, the year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then Little Women, um, a little too small for me. Uh, is that nominated for best uh, picture? Bigger. Yeah, oh, that's good. Well, it's but it makes the fact that she wasn't nominated for director like even worse in a way. Hmm. Um. Especially when we get to who uh, who was nominated for best director, um, but let's let's keep on going. Uh, Marriage Story, who cares? Nineteen uh, Seventeen, who cares? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's a film that deserves it. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Parasite, uh, who cares? Yeah. So uh, and then here's the best director nominations: Martin Scorsese. Okay, I think we we yeah. both would agree on that one. 
Uh, and then I think you would disagree with all of the other four, but and I would disagree with three of them, which is to say Todd Phillips got nominated for Joker. Uh, good stuff. Uh, Sam Mendes for 1917. Uh, mm. Sam Mendes is, is a terrible filmmaker. <laughs> Just yeah. going to put that out. Uh, the uh, old, old Quentin Tarantino for What's Fun Time in Hollywood. Uh, both of our favorite choice, I think. Mm. Uh, and then uh, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm personally, and uh, do you know what film got the most nominations? What? Uh, Joker did, of course. <laughs> with 11 nominations. Nice. Is, um, so Joker wasn't on Best Picture? No, it was on Best Picture. Did I, I, may, I may have just skipped over it. Ah, okay, so it was. Yeah. Um, so I think that what I'm hoping for is just a Joker sweep. Uh, best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Everything Else. So Gerwig's nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay as well, right? Yes. And, yeah, just... No, she. it says... Little Women has six nominations, so let's see what else. Uh, best Costume Design, whatever. That's That's a dumb category. Hmm. I mean, it's dumb that the films that get nominated are always, like, period pieces, um, which is true for everyone this year. Uh, it's also nominated for, let's see, Best Original Score, <laughs> alongside uh, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a choice. Um, and... I will say that the original score part of Little Women did not really make an impression on me. Mm, I actually really like the score a lot. Uh, but then in both uh, Florence Pugh and Sorcy Rodin got nominated for Best Actress in Supporting Actress. <laughs> I believe it's Pugh. <laughs> no, no, no. P- Pugh. <laughs> I don't it's, think so. It's Pugh. It's not Pugh. Pugh. No, no, no. It's Pugh. <laughs> what are you talking Florence about? Pugh. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, but but you should be happy that Margot Robbie got nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actress. You're your country woman. In Sabotage. Uh, in Sabotage? What's that film called? Bombshell. <laughs> Bombshell. How yeah. did they get that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I feel like I feel like supporting actor I mean it's crazy that uh God, this 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 year is so bad. Like wow, holy shit. Like Jonathan Price for the two popes? Who cares? Fuck, fuck the two popes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're going to do a, a Oscar special, right? Of course. Where we talk about all the films that were nominated for the Oscars and also the Oscars themselves. What, what, if you had to make it, let's let's make some Oscar predictions right now. What do you think is actually going to win Best Picture? Hmm. Uh, nineteen seventeen. Hmm. <sighs> yeah, I think I think maybe because the two films that won comedy and um, drama respectively, which for the last like five years has been what the Academy has gone with, were Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Nineteen Seventeen. Hmm. And I don't, I don't know why, because like I, I feel like Nineteen Seventeen has no momentum. No one cares about it besides these. Voters. That's why I, I can, can imagine it, like, <laughs> winning. <laughs> but that's why I'm like I'm kind of I kind of don't want to win because it's a, like a boring choice, you know. Yeah. Like like Green Book is like a travesty, but at least it's like funny that it won, right? <laughs> yeah. Like 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 they they dominated Green Book and Black Klansmen in the same year. Like that's hilarious. 
So the no. the equivalent choice this time would be to give it to Joker, right? That would be the funny choice. I think I think there were there are several of them that I think would be funny, actually. Well, well just two maybe. Ford versus Ferrari would be funny. <laughs> that would be funny. But there's no way that happens, so because like typically, I mean, I, I, maybe this is some other. I think I think maybe Argo was the last one that did this. But if you don't get nominated for best director, typically the film doesn't win for best picture. Right. So, for if it's really five nominees, right? Uh, I think Joker would be really funny. Mm. Uh, but also, I think Jojo Rabbit would also be pretty funny. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if Bong Joon Ho won best director. So, mm. Robbie, Robbie Joker of its eternal glory. <laughs> the funniest split for me would be, like, if, if they gave, like, uh, Scorsese best director and then gave it to Joker. Because, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, Joker is just, like, a shitty pastiche of his work, you know? Yeah. So, that would be hilarious. Um, Even the other way around would be funny. Like, giving the Irish <laughs> yeah. the best picture, but actually, best director actually, that, was that, tough. That, 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 that would probably be funnier, honestly. But I feel like that's a le- that's less likely to happen. I, I, I do want to like, hear Todd Phillips uh, accept the award. Me, me too. I bet, I bet, I mean, Joker's going to win something. I mean, the 100% that Joaquin Phoenix wins best actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who, yeah. who are the best actress nominees? I got Cynthia Erivo for Harriet. Didn't see it. I've actually only seen Little Women of this category. So. Mm. Uh, but Scarlett uh, Johansson for Marriage Story. Uh, Sorcy Rodin for Little, Little Women. Uh, Charlize Theron for uh, Bombshell. Right. And then uh, Renee Zellweger, who's the front runner, front runner, is Judy Garland and Judy, which looked terrible. So. Mm. Returning to Little Women... What did you think of the core performances? I thought they were all great. Hmm. I never really understood why people. I mean, I've always sort of liked Sorcy Road, especially after Little uh, Lady Bird. Wait, let's let's get it right. Sersha. Sersha, whatever. Who cares? Sersha Rodin. She has to say it in every interview. So. <laughs> I mean, we're not interviewing her. Not yet. Anyway, um, I thought she was great. But I, I, I feel like um, a lot of people on film Twitter, whatever that is, really love Florence uh, Pooh. <laughs> yeah, Florence Pooh. Yeah, Florence Pooh. You got it. I got it. Yes, basically every review that I've come across has singled her out. Uh, but I thought she was great, so I don't know. Yeah, she was good. And I kind of understand why people love her so much. And it's a difficult role to play as well. Yeah. She's definitely the one... Of the main women who risks coming off the worst, I think. Like a Nazi. Yeah. What? <laughs> well, she burns books. Uh, okay. Um, and she's but I think, I think, uh, I think Florence uh, Pugh does a great job of, like, balancing. Yeah. I don't know. Making her relatable. And, and I don't know. I mean, it's obviously, you know, mixing with the way that... Um, uh, Gerwig has like chosen to, you know, structure the film. Yeah, because I think I think she's already had some um, mature sequences before we flash back to, you know, her most adolescent act. Yeah. So it kind of reframes that again.
Uh, I yeah, really liked I Chris Cooper as Maybe. well. Mm, yeah, he was good. I found that that sequence where he listens to Beth playing piano um, very moving. Mm, me too. Um, Although, <laughs> I, I have to, I have to imagine that you were the same. <laughs> that you thought of it was possibly Peter Childbuster? Yes. <laughs> because he's like, yes, come to my home and play piano. And yes, my daughter who died. And then he's like creeping downstairs. <laughs> and then he's yeah. jet, like, and like if they show like her playing, then they pan around the corner and he's like jacking off around the <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> Uh, good film though. Yeah, great film. Great film. Better or worse than Lady Bird? Would you say? I would say at first blush, I think Lady Bird just pips it, but mm. I'm not convinced it will stay that way. Because I would like to see it again. I think. I'd I'd have to watch both of them again before I could mm. uh, see it say for sure. Me too. Because I have seen them both only the once. Are you hoping that she continues to exploit Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet's chemistry? I'm hoping that she doesn't make another movie. Ever? No. Ever. Mm. No, no. Uh, That's fair. I do wonder what she does next. I like the idea of of her... Because it doesn't really happen that often. I mean, it kind of does sometimes, but... I like the idea of her, like, going back and using Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet again. Hmm. Because then you get a nice box set in the future. (laughs) Gersha, Ronan, Charlemagne. Gersha? (laughs) Gersha. That's what you said. I know. (laughs) Sasha Ronan's like a cipher, so, you know. You were... were, A proxy. Uh, (laughs) Gallimay? Um, yeah, uh, I want. I do wonder what she does after this because this film's been pretty successful at the box office. So, presumably, she'll just be able to do whatever she wants. Yeah. Um, I wonder if she'll adapt to the Oscar, go back to original screenplays. But who knows? I would expect the next one would be an original screenplay. Yeah, I would agree probably, but obviously it's going to be a couple years before anything comes out of that. So. I like this movie's view of marriage, too. As someone mm. who is anti-marriage. Um, so there you go. Okay. Uh, Alright, you want to get on with it? Yeah. Project time, it's project time. 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 films now we're going to talk about um she hate me i don't have the list in front of me so i don't know which one we should talk about first so we should uh, do so it in descending order yeah i'm gonna quickly i'm quickly and i believe that she hate me is lower ranked than well i'm gonna check right now Quintet. she hate me got she hate me uh hates it's 19 percent on rotten tomatoes and quintet is 20 right that's i'm taking it right now 
It was 20 at the time of you compiling the original list. If you just had the screenshot in front of you, then yeah, 20%. So I guess we'll start with Quintet. Quintet, you'll need to find five buttons. Grab a pentagonal board. Divide it into five sectors. Divide each sector into five rooms and one limit. Six man rolls the highest number. Determines the killing order. Faces the survivor. Quintet. Uh, this is a movie, uh, as I um, put on my genius letterbox review. What did, you've already reviewed it on Letterbox? No, I didn't rate it. I just I just wrote a review, um, which is about the end of the world. Uh, and this this film is very predictable this way. It's about a bunch of incels who are obsessed with playing a video game at the end of the world. <laughs> uh, and. It's see, let's see. So Paul Newman is this uh, Paul Newman type. I just watched this movie, so it's it's fresh on the dome. Um, who is with a wife and has a child in her stomach, uh, and they're wandering through the frozen wilderness of some unnamed place, actually Montreal. Um, and after being uh, up north, so called, for a couple of years, they decided to return to the city where he was possibly born which was shot in the Montreal Expo 60-something, 67 Dome that I've been to, and was, after this movie was played, converted to a sort of, like, um, ecological Board game museum. tournament? Uh, nope. Uh, so, I've been to the sets of this film. So, um, he goes to this city, which has been ruined, and for some reason everyone has been obsessed, become obsessed with this board game called Quintet. It's the only thing um, left. Yep. Uh, just like all video games are the only thing left in our world. Uh, so there's not a lot of plot to this movie. Um, despite the fact that it's two hours long. <laughs> uh, and so uh, he meets up with his brother. And then his brother gets killed. And so does his wife and his unborn child. Yep. Uh, so he sort of starts investigating why that happened. Um, and he gets drawn into this other weird quintet game that's maybe happening for real. Why are people getting murdered? Wait, you mean it's not just confined to the board? No, it's just like a Ju- it's a Jumanji happening right now. <laughs> um, so uh, that's pretty much it. Um, you, what did you think of the movie Quintet? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I watched this on YouTube. <laughs> so did I. So there's a very nice transfer that someone has kindly uploaded. But you'll notice something immediately that will make you question the the upload. You're like, did they put copyright protection stuff on the image to avoid it being detected by, like, whoever holds the rights to this movie? Which sometimes they do, by, like, distorting the edge of the frame or... Ah, yes, I did notice that. Um... So I had to to double-check that that wasn't part of the film. Yeah, I I knew that that was part of the film because I had read reviews of this film years ago and knew that was a feature. Mm. So just to, just to explicate exactly what you're, say, you're saying is that I would say about 75 to 80% of the shots in this no, film. No, I think it's 100%. Genuinely. It's not 100%. There, no, there, no, I just watched it. There's definitely shots that did not have it. I, I was paying attention to it the whole movie and there are some shots where it's much more pronounced than others, but I'm pretty sure... 
okay. it's there to some extent on the whole movie. Well, we can say a vast extent, yeah, vast yeah. Okay. majority For of the shots. Effectively, the whole film, yeah, is, is, is rendered this someone, way. Someone, someone smeared Vaseline around the edge of the lens. It's like uh, the soap opera effect. I, I, I can't say I know why Altman decided to do this. Um, <laughs> I, it was I, meant to emphasize the cold air. So it's essentially trying to approximate the experience of looking through a window on a frosty night and that frosting mm. around the periphery of the pain or something. That's what I was getting from it. Well, uh, I must say it was not successful <laughs> in its evocation. <laughs> but anyway. I think sometimes it was. Hmm. When it didn't look like it, there's just Vaseline spread around the periphery <laughs> of the is, lens. Which is most of it. Like, sometimes if it was just a still shot and it was in the right spots, it kind of mm. worked, I think. Anyway, you asked me what I think of this film. Yeah. Look, is this film tedious? Uh, I'm not gonna answer my. I'm not gonna answer that question. You have to I mean, answer, so. yes, it is. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna reveal. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna reveal my. Opinion yeah, right, right. It is. It is tedious. I'm willing to say that, but I think that's its strength <laughs> in a way. This is a post-apocalyptic film about people playing board games. <laughs> uh huh. Like that's that's his projection to the future that mankind will wind up with nothing else to do with their lives but play this board game. And uh, it goes into why that is eventually, like when there's nothing, when there's nothing going on in the world and we're all just, you know, marking time in this desperate situation. The sense of danger in this game, which has real world consequences because you actually get killed if you get killed in the game, gives you something to live for. It gives you that adrenaline, it gives you that rush, it gives you perspective on your life and there's nothing else in this world to live for so you may as well play this stupid game. Anyway, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. we have like, we have like, um, Paul Newman, sort of this emotionally stunted Pat Boone, hmm. wandering through this bizarre set. Most of it's the interior set, so it opens in that exterior snow field or whatever, but the rest of the time we're in like this really bizarre ice capped set which has some mm. i some design i enjoyed actually particularly like the information room with the panes of glass you know i don't know what was going on there but it was enjoyable and uh i i really dug this film <laughs> i don't think it's particularly good i think i think a lot of the the philosophical questions that it attempts to raise with this dumb board game are dumb but again, like those things are kind of part of the enjoyment of this that I get from it. And it's not just all laughing at how bad this film is. I don't think it's a bad film. I think it has some things going for it. It has a certain mood. There's pleasure to be had in the weird design. And there's pleasure to be had in just wondering what the hell Robert Alton was thinking coming up with this over the course of eight years or whatever it was. And one thing I really enjoyed, so you've just discovered that in the original press release that accompanied this film, they actually specified the rules of this board game. So it is, to some degree, playable. Which is, But in the film itself, it just seems like nonsense. In the film itself, it just seems like nonsense, yeah. And I like that kind of thing in, the, in, in this kind of film, that arbitrary nature of, like, you're not 
given any perspective on how this game actually works, except for some mm. nonsense about who kills who and whatever. Yeah, so you're just watching these people, like, um, throw shells and, and dice around this pentagonal board. Mm. Do you like how I got that word right first time? Because I cut out that bit where I couldn't get the right word and you had to correct me. You motherfucker! And uh, that was up my alley, honestly. Mm. Um, yeah, good stuff. What did you think? <laughs> uh, I... Uh, in all honesty, Hugh, you know, I think I agree with you to a certain extent about some of the design. Um, and it is just the I- I- idea of the film is so absurd that having, uh, having watched it, I can, I can, uh, appreciate it on, like, a weird, like, why did, why did someone make this level, you know? But when I was watching it, it was probably the most boring film I've seen in my entire life. So... Uh, I can only agree with your taking pleasure from it to a certain extent. I take pleasure uh, in the way it's boring because I think it's kind of fascinating that it has the ingredients of like a disaster like Zardoz, but it doesn't have that yeah. kind of trashy aesthetic pleasure. No, it's just dull. So that that's, that's why I kind of like it. It has this like portentous, self-serious atmosphere. It, it definitely feels... It definitely feels narcotic, but it doesn't... I, I don't think... I mean, at least for me, that atmosphere never, like, felt, like, real, mm. you know? And part of it, I think, is I don't really think Paul Newman is doing anything at all in this movie. No, he was fucking sleepwalking through this film. <laughs> so, I was... I mean, and so is every other actor, for the most part. I mean, he's a charismatic performer, <laughs> so, and he does not break his yeah. expression at, at any I point. Mean, <laughs> I feel like that must have been either a choice or... What Altman wanted, yeah. him, you know, um, which is insane. <laughs> um, but not that I think this film would be better. I mean, there is like something. I mean, I thought the music was really annoying. I quite so, liked the, the, the kind music, of, the sort of shooter avant-garde uh, score. Well, I, I thought it was. I thought it was annoying. So, <laughs> in some spots, it, it does get annoying at points. Um. And I just, I thought it really killed whatever atmosphere he was going for. I thought the, the, some of the set design is nice. I will agree with you on that. Um, but a lot of it just reminded me of like a Christmas village. Like <laughs> that, like all this like fake ice, you know? Uh, and it reminded me a lot of like watching like a bad old Star Trek. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, but unlike Star Trek, which is only like 40 minutes to an hour. <laughs> Uh, this is two hours. It does... It is kind of like a plot that would fit into an episodic sci-fi television show. Like, even Sliders or something. I want... There is, there is an episode of Star, of Star Trek where uh, they get all addicted to a, bo- a game. Yeah. So, of Next Generation, so... But you can't imagine you them coming to this planet going, why is everyone playing this board game? And then discovering yeah. that people are actually dying. Like, it's like a... It's like a Doctor Who episode or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but boring. Like I said. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and you know there's different kinds of boredness uh there's product there's there's films that use boredness productively i think yeah um but i do not think this is one of them i just thought it was really dull i am um, ultimately and... just so happy that this exists in the world <laughs> i mean see that's that's where i guess like i i am kind of glad that this exists too and i'm kind of glad that i watched it because you know it, there's, there's no other film that's like this you know no. um but do I think it's an enjoyable film to watch? No, I think it's really boring. But I do kind of enjoy that. Yeah, you know, this is like Altman's, pro- like you know, his 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 like passion project, basically. Mm. 
which is insane because it doesn't feel. I mean, obviously, this is a film that's like you know it feels very idiosyncratic. But I don't always really see Albin's like. I mean, not that I know his personality, especially because like, I've only seen Mash, which I watched when I was a teenager. But um, you know, the the standard line on his on his like ticks, the things that he's interested in, are not present in this movie at all. You know. No, I think I think most people's conception of Altman is kind of reductive as well, though, because he does have quite a varied yeah, filmography, and he he does other things than just assemble ensemble casts and overlap the dialogue. Yeah. Um, That's true. I wonder how close it is to uh, uh, like Bruce McCloud, which I've never seen, and and even uh, McCabe and Miss Miller or something like that, which is set in the snow. So. Mm. Um, so he, he apparently wanted, according to Wikipedia, Walter Hill to write and direct the film, even though he came up with the idea. Which probably would have been better. And that might be why he might have thought, this doesn't really fit with what I, what I normally do, Mm. so maybe I should get someone else. I am kind of disappointed that we had to watch this and not OC in in Skugs, though, I have to say. Mm, we could watch that anyway. (laughs) Yeah, we could just watch that for fun. OC and Stiggs. That was what I was expecting the lowest film to be when I read about it. I was like, this has got to be it. But no. I wonder how low that has. I mean, I can understand why critics wouldn't be interested in this movie, because it is, like, very boring, so. But, you know, I kind of love it. I just genuinely do love it. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I feel about the Billion Dollar Hotel, actually. Mm. <laughs> Uh, that is not how I feel about I that. I think that was the <laughs> most tedious ex- viewing experience of my life. Maybe our opinions of, of, of that is just swapped, you know? Yeah, I'll take this any day of the week. <laughs> and I'll take Million Dollar Hotel, which is also just, like, terrible, but just so... I'm just so happy that it exists in this, like, as this, like, bizarre nonsense film. But we should play Quintet. We uh, absolutely should. Person. We should play it live on the podcast. Right now. You just need to get four or five other people. Four other people. Four other people, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do like that, uh, despite the, the fact that the game's rules are completely impossible to understand based on the, the, the information the film gives you, mm. that's the, the, the plot is structured around them to some degree. Mm. Yeah, that's what I appreciated <laughs> I about funny. it, because it made it this like arbitrary center to this film. Mm. I actually like opaque procedural stuff for some reason. Yeah, that's because you're a dummy. Um, yeah, so uh, I would give this a thumbs down. Thumbs <laughs> down? The original. Yep. Hey, buddy, you're lucky it's not two. I give this three thumbs up. <laughs> One you did thumb up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, you ready to... She hate me. She hate me. Now, Hugh, I'll, I'll leave it to you to explain this movie. Which which of the five movies in this movie should I explain? There's only one movie. I know. Uh, okay, so She Hate Me. Spike mm. Lee, 2004. Mm. We open in corporate America. Mm-hmm. Q-Tip is somewhere in the building. Yes. Anthony Mackie, somewhere in the building. The kid from the tin drum kills himself as an adult. They're trying to get approval on a, an AIDS vaccine from the FDA. 
There's some issue there. Um, guy kills himself. Anthony Mackie uncovers uh, fraudulent behavior on behalf of the higher-ups in the company, corporate um, white-collar mm. crime. Mm. He decides to be a whistleblower, makes a complaint. Mm. He gets fired, the shit hits the fan. Mm. Company's coming after him, they freeze his assets, they freeze his bank account. What's what's he gonna do to get What's he gonna this, do for money? Freezer? Yeah. What well, remember his uh ex girlfriend who he nearly married before he discovered that uh she was cheating on him with another woman. I, I don't remember this because it's literally brought up in this scene. But I mean remember it from the film you watched. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, she comes into the the apartment uh-huh. with her girlfriend. Okay, fair enough. And she's like, hey, we want a kid. You're an attractive, powerful, intelligent man. Wait, they're talking about Anthony Mackie here? Anthony Mackie. <laughs> Well-educated. Uh, good genes. I could buy that. Sounds a little eugenic-y, but okay. Let's uh, get that dick in. Oh, what, they're lesbians. Yeah, but, you I know, she was like confused. It. She she yeah. fucked Mackie before. Yeah, yeah. She turned. Ma- Mackie's going to straighten, straighten her out. Hmm. And uh, they, their scheme is uh, that they'll, they'll pay him for his sperm. Hmm. Uh, he will donate it to his ex-girlfriend the old-fashioned way. Hmm. By, by sticking it in her. But her partner mm. is not into that and she she just wants to be uh, she just wants the, the sperm and she's gonna wants to baste it into herself yeah because they both want to be pregnant and raise two kids at the same time mm. uh, which is a thing that happens right um, I could buy it I don't know possibly now, as as a result of their their positive experience with the Mackie, the the Mac, his ex girlfriend and her partner come up with a scheme that involves Mackie doing what he did to them to mm. other lesbian women who want children mm. for money, and they get a bit of a cut. Mackie makes bank. Mm. Everyone's happy. Mm. Lesbians get kids. Does that include the viewer? Yes. Obviously. Okay. Obviously. Um, now, how how is he going to deliver his sperm to these lesbian women? Tell me that first. Um... Okay, is it going to be by ejaculating into a cup and they'd use some sort of method of artificial insemination? Yeah, that's that's what you'd expect, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what happens then? No. Because obviously being lesbians, they probably don't have that much interest in having sex with him because he's a man. That's right. Yet, for the sake of having a better chance of having a baby, mm. all of the lesbian women decide to go with the old-fashioned method which is unprotected sex with Anthony Mackie. That doesn't sound particularly scientific to me. No. So they all decide to have unprotected sex with 
Anthony Mackie, one after another, mm. on the same night. I mean, there are a couple of different groups, but they come in packs. Let's, let's say five women at a time. So on a certain night, he will inseminate the old-fashioned way, all of them in turn, with the help of some boner pills. And some Red Bull. And some Red Bull. get the product placement in there. And maybe some natural virility. Mm. Just maybe. I mean, he is an uberminch after all. Mm. Uh, anyway, so this is one of the plot lines. And then uh, Monica Bellucci appears. Mm. She wants the same thing. He gives it to her. But then it turns out that she's the daughter of a mob boss played by John Turturro. <laughs> what that does mean is that John Turturro is only seven years older than she is. That gets him in trouble with the police. Uh, oh, and th- then a real police story happens. Yeah. And then uh, he ends up in a court case defending his actions against the company. Hmm. Sounds pretty exciting. And then it ends on a heartwarming note, of course. <laughs> uh, did they need to remind you of um, being John Malkovich? <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely what I thought of. I didn't think of that, but yes, it does make sense. <laughs> and I haven't seen that movie since I was a teenager. Anyway, she hate me. That's the film. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds pretty exciting. Now, you know how it's like... It's a mixture of kind of five different plot lines. Sure, sure. There, you, you skipped over a couple of them, but okay. Did you know that it also includes each of the city's five boroughs? That city being New York City. <laughs> uh, I can't say that I was cognizant of this fact, but I can and buy it. Did you know that we just watched a film called... Wait, that's not true. Quintet. <laughs> I don't <think> you. <laughs> I think it includes all With five how many boroughs. sides... I think, I think it only has two. I think it only has Brooklyn and, and Manhattan. No, it literally says this on Wikipedia. I didn't know this. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Why would you anyone bother doing that? Maybe that's part of his game. Anyway, please, continue. Is there any more? I just sh- it says shot mostly on location. That doesn't mean it's set in the five rows, so... No, it says it's shot mostly on location in New York City, including each of the city's five boroughs. Yeah. Doesn't mean that it's set in those five boroughs. Including each <laughs> of the city's... <laughs> Can I help you? <laughs> five boroughs. <laughs> okay. Now, she hate me. Did he <laughs> hate it? Uh-huh. Are you, oh, is that, is that a refer- reference? Is that referring to me? He is in you. Let's see, Hugh. I was kind of going to this movie expecting something that was a disaster, right? You know, that's everything I'd heard about it seemed to suggest it. Uh, especially that uh, um, lesbian sex plot, which I read about years ago and thought was just so bizarre. Uh, and I gotta say, uh, I, had a, I had a mixed reaction to this film, I'd say. Mm. Um, there are parts of it that I thought were intentionally very funny. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, there are parts of it that uh, I thought were tenured. Uh, there are parts of it that I thought were really homophobic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of enjoyed the corporate stuff. I think he is kind of doing interesting things with, like, you know, as Spike Lee does by connecting everything in history and attempting to, I don't know, because it's really, 
the 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 work you have to do in this film is is trying to connect these two plot lines, which seem to have nothing to do with each other at all, right? Mm. Um, and I think there are I think there is an interesting ish reading that I also think is kind of homophobic, but whatever. Uh, you know, comparing the idea of like, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the way basically Spike Lee seems to think of of corporate America is kind of uh, just sort of another like. Uh, it's almost like a slavery-ish um, world where, you know, obviously the one black man in the office is going to get all the blame for, you know, anything that goes wrong. And uh, despite trying to do the right thing, he, he just can't catch a break. Um, and uh, I think he sort of is comparing that to, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just kind of babbling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just like the film is kind of. Uh, I definitely, I, I, it really just feels like he, like, was reading, like, four newspaper articles and then decided to adapt them into a movie, uh, <laughs> and it kind of, it kind of reminded me of Godard in that way, <laughs> mm. um, but I think, uh, Anthony Mackie is not, uh, good in this movie, and I think that's a real problem. <laughs> uh, I didn't mind him, to be honest. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, I didn't, I, I just didn't think, he just seemed ill-suited for the role to me, but mm. I, then again, I don't know who would be... Well, yeah. so, so <laughs> um, I did laugh really, really hard when the, the first shot of the sperm with his face on it comes the CGI screen, sperm, which is really funny, and I think it is intended to be a joke. Um, but I have to say that uh, this film is way too long, <laughs> and uh, what else? Yeah, it's a uh, hundred and thirty-eight minutes. <laughs> yes. Um, and it, it's, it just, it's kind of, it's a mixed bag, let's say. Indeed. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely not as bad as I was expecting, but it's, it's just good enough to wish you, make you wish it had been better. And again, it's like super homophobic, so. Mm. Um, even if there's like, there's like moments where he's like, but it's so sad that, I mean, this is another laugh line for me where, uh, it's like. Carrie Washington turns to the screen and is like, do you know how hard it is for gay couples to adopt? And I was like, okay, Spike, it's okay. Like, <laughs> you're just going to be, you're going to, like, invalidate, I don't know, like, lesbianism as an experience. So you don't need to have this, like, I don't know, faux wokeness about, about gay people. It's okay. Oh, also, also, I thought the music in this movie was god terrible. so. <laughs> it's the same guy who does all his music, I think. Uh, at least for the last, like, couple of films. But it just no, seems no, it's so... like he's done, like, 14 of his films. Yeah, last, you know, 14. <laughs> Same difference. Um, but I just thought it was very ill-suited to the movie. Uh, so. The music was ill-suited, yeah. Because, it like, <laughs> there's a I mean. scene in particular between Q-Tip and um, Anthony Mackie when they're making jokes about sperm donation in a sperm donation yeah. clinic. And it just has this really uh, dramatic sort of jazz-inflected score above it i mean maybe the music by itself is fine yeah yeah that's what i think i think is is the case it's, it's just not matched well to the movie it's, it's no and it kind of like robs a lot of the scenes that they're dramatic or their comedic potential i think so uh and it very much it reminded me of like watching a uh public like a tv show, show on like pbs or or something mm. you, know, you know what i mean that's like that sort of vibe um so i don't know and also just like why were we watching those scenes with Q-tip in a sperm clinic? 
Uh, what do they have I to do with anything? Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I didn't object I mean, to saying Q-tip. I like Q-tip. Yeah, yeah. Q-tip's good. I mean, Not that he's much of an actor. But... Well, we we do have to uh, <laughs> say right here is that after we watched this movie, I discovered that Q-tip was part of the Pussy Posse, which kind of disturbed me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for those listeners unfamiliar, what is the Pussy Posse? Uh, the Pussy Posse is uh, it was uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was the wing leader of it. Um, it's basically this group of ho- famous Hollywood young male stars, uh, and also Q-tip. and E from Entourage. <laughs> yes, um, and Lucas Haas. Uh, who else? Toby McGuire and some other people uh, who basically <laughs> had sex with women. I guess I don't know. Uh, seems a little, you know, sexist and bad, but you know, whatever. Um, and that's what it is. So it seems yeah. like something from Entourage. <laughs> yeah, uh, which E from Entourage is he was in Entourage. That's that's a, that's why he Indeed. changed his name to E from Entourage. <laughs> <laughs> what is his name? <laughs> um, I, I genuinely can't remember. The director uh, of Gotti. Director of Gotti. Yeah, he just did a couple other films. I think. Is it no? Eric is his name in Entourage. Actually. Yeah, E for Eric. Oh man, I can't remember. Wait, anyway, let's let's keep on talking about she hit. Let's like get a t- uh, get to right. off topic. So my Kevin Connolly was, was sort of similar to yours. Hmm. In that, uh, yeah, it's mixed. There were parts of this that I enjoyed. It wasn't as bad as I was expecting it to be. It's all over the place. Um, it does make me wonder. Like I, I'm not sure I agree with. Roger Ebert's read on it, but it does make me wonder because it's so tonally bizarre. What is what is Roger Ebert's read on it? I'm not. I'm not. I didn't read his review. So, it's worth yeah. having a read of. He opens it with this film is going to get bad reviews, mm. terrible reviews. The Rotten Tomato meter is going to be around twenty, which mm. is basically exactly where it is, except one. Well, it's, not, it's nineteen. So yeah. nice, nice try, Robert. Um, <laughs> and then he lists all the things that are, are wrong with it. Like he says, mm. as I already said earlier, it's like mm. it's a number of different films and he breaks down the different stories. He says all the problems with it that you'd expect that everyone else has pointed out in their genuinely negative reviews. And then he said, but something about it troubled him mm. and that it felt like his read on it, his, uh, his initial reaction, which was negative, wasn't quite right. So he rewatched the film. And now he believes that, I don't know, it's kind of it's kind of hard to follow exactly what his logic is, but he's kind <laughs> of suggesting that Spike Lee knows exactly what he was doing. With the way this film is put together in terms of the, the tonal issues and the different storylines he's mixing together, with the way that he's using stereotypes, like the stereotype of the virile black male, for example. Yeah. And the way he's intentionally pushing the bounds of political correctness in his depiction of um, this situation with homosexual couples and this guy, right? And uh, like one of the, the things he mentioned, which is uh, which is hilarious, the way that it's depicted in this film, is not only do all these lesbian women agree to have full-on penetrative sex with a man in order to get impregnated not even try the other way first or anything like that just go all out with it but they're willing to do to have unprotected sex with him 
after potentially up to four or five women have done it that same night. Yeah. That was one of the examples of Roger Ebert saying this is so, like, ludicrous, the idea of this, that it's obvious that Spike Lee is, is making a joke about what he's doing. I do I do think he's making a joke about it. I don't think that's too far. I mean, what else is that, like, Stephen with, with Anthony Mackie's face on it supposed he's to making a, He's making a joke about it, but it's just a question of what type of joke he's making about it. Yeah. In a way. That's, I mean, I, th- I think it is trying to up the ludicrousness of it, but I still think it, it, it reads as homophobic, too. Yes. I mean, the effect, ultimately, is <laughs> homophobic. And also kind of sexist, too. Yeah. This, it, the the way he shoots, I mean, even the way he shoots, like, the, the lesbian sex scenes is, like, you know, I mean, obviously he's a man, so it's going to be male gazy no matter what you do, but it just feels very, like, pornographic or, like, soft quarry, you know? Mm. Yeah. But, like, I do kind of, I, I do think it, it might be worth entertaining the notion that the kind of aggressively heterosexual way, male heterosexual way that this whole um, story is depicted... Mm could have a satirical side to it. Possibly. I, I, I was willing to defend a lot of the things until <laughs> the ending. Oh, yeah, which is torturous. But I think, like, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's that's the problem with this movie is it never really feels... Because, like, on one hand, it's like, it is... it You know, there is that, like, ludicrous tone that it's going for. And I, I don't really mind, like, these, like, harsh tonal shifts, even if I think, like, the more dramatic elements of this movie don't really work that well. Like, the relationship with his, like, his father and stuff like that, I just thought was, like, whatever. Uh, and he could have just cut it out of the movie and I would have felt nothing. You know what I mean? Hmm. Um, but, uh, I think that, yeah, just the, the way it ends, like, so sentimentally, you know? I don't know, there's something, like, kind of troubling about that to me. To me, I think the thing that you can't really explain away, or I think the thing that is perhaps most... Prob- problematic about it is the 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 suggestion the implicit suggestion and the outrightly stated suggestion that occurs over this film that these women who are having these this child still need a man in their life right yeah yeah and that he his moral quandary is about the fact that he's donated the sperm to these women and that they're not going to have a father is kind of suggested a lot of times in this film. Yeah, and I, I was just like, I don't, I don't give it, like, fuck, fuck off. <laughs> like, yeah, and that seems more like a blind spot than yeah. a satirical comment Yeah, to me. Or it almost seems like, it almost seems, um, what he's satirizing is like the fact that, you know, these women want to have children but don't want to have a man in their life at all, you know? Yeah. There's something, like, really sort of disgusting about that. Hmm. Um, so. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm eating some chocolate. Okay. Are you, you like, unwrapping object? individual chocolates? Yeah. Okay. Just so clear. <laughs> I can't believe you're objecting to be, objecting to be sustaining myself. Hmm. We're talking about she hate me. <laughs> I can't believe I have to go to work at 11 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> are you gonna go to? Are you trying to go to sleep before that? Yeah. How many days per week are you? Full time, mate. Oh my god. <laughs> what? How long is that translate to? Like, what is full time in Australia? Uh, uh eight hours, five days a week. Okay. At, at least. 
I think the time can vary. Like sometimes I can finish up a bit early because it is based on a production schedule. It's like quotas, sometimes yeah. I can go over, but I think it's approximately full time hours. <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't know how long you'll last there, but good luck. Me either. <laughs> yeah, the, actually, let's... honestly, I kind of love everything about it. <laughs> the worst part for me, and this is the worst part of any job, is if I feel I'm not good enough. Right, uh-huh. but the individual tasks I'm supposed to do. Uh-huh. You kind of expected to feel that way on the first day. Yeah. But like being on the production line while there's like sandwiches piling up and you're expected to maintain a certain rate. If I could do that um, and zone out, that's absolutely fine. Like there was a, a portion of the night where I was like for like a couple of hours or something, I was literally just cutting sandwiches diagonally. And it was great. Sounds great. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Heaven, truly. Um, and packing stuff is is a lot better. Yeah. But like, there's there's good parts of. I, I kind of wanted to experience a night shift job anyway. I I thought that'd be interesting, and I don't mind the idea of it. So first of all, in high summer in Australia, especially in this horrible smoky weather, I'm leaving to go to work when it's dark and much cooler. Yeah, that's nice. And I'm returning home, you know, early in the morning when it hasn't heated up yet. So I'm basically avoiding exposing myself to summer. That is nice. And there's something weirdly nice about the idea of, like, if I wanted to go out after work, it's like the morning. Yeah, so you can go get, like, a breakfast sandwich or something. Yeah. Yeah, that is nice. There's something nice about that. Well, (laughs) I hope that uh, you stay there a really long time. Me too. Yeah, unless it interferes with the podcast, in which case I hope you quit immediately. So the only... Re- well, the, this is this is another good thing about working the night shift. My days yeah, are free. Uh, hours, yeah, our hours. So we can always hours. record. Yeah. Now the problem will be finding time to edit and everything, but we'll sort that out. Yeah. All right. So um, let's go back to She Hate Me. She Hate Me. Yeah. But no, I, I another thought- thing that's funny. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. Oh, my God. The only reason I was hired, because this is probably uh-huh. why they ignored my resume last time, was that they seemed desperate for people who were able to be, like, a leader, uh-huh. which I don't I don't want to be, like, in a leadership position in this context at all. But anyway, that seems to be the only reason I got, I got hired, because they're like, oh, yeah, there's lots of room for growth here. Um, well, cut to, cut to five five months from now when you're a, a manager. Oh, God. <laughs> the other thing he wanted me to do is work the machine, mm. which I'm happy with. He's like, I need I need someone good on the machine. So I was like, yeah, I'll work the machine. What machine? It's the uh, um, Subway sandwich encasing in plastic machine. Ah, gotcha. What do you have to do with that? Just wait for things to get lined up and then push a button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds, sounds but it's great. also a bit fiddly because it doesn't work on its own unless you kind of guide it through. Mm. Yeah, there's nuance. You've got to be a genius. Yeah. All right. Um, so she hate me. She hate me. Um, you loved it. What did, what did you think about this film's uh, messages about the financial sector? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the corporate stuff I found more enjoyable than the sex fat, the, the sex fast stuff. 
I think I felt the same way about both of them, actually, which is, like, I enjoyed them, and then they went on too long, and then I stopped enjoying them. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a, is the main problem with this movie, is it seems like you could cut, like, 45 minutes out of it, and it'd be way better. And it is hilarious the way that, um, you know, he does his, like, courtroom speech where he talks about the security guard who broke the yeah. Watergate scandal and everything. Yeah, yeah. A usual sort of Spike Lee PSA monologue. Integration it's kind of strange though. We got we got two uh, uh, reenactments of it. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we probably didn't need to have both. I, I enjoyed. He, he has like a fantasy sequence. Yeah. With Nixon and stuff, I, yeah. I enjoyed that scene actually. I thought it was. I I kind of like the idea, but it felt very like um, sketch comedy to me. Yeah, but I like the way that a lot of this film was shot. And I, yeah. I do like the fact that Spike Lee is quite consistent in his push to be experimental in the way he films things. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I really like the shot, the shot sequence where Anthony Mackie's just like going through Times Square and like repeats the same shot over and over again. Me too, yeah. That was really I good. That, I thought that was really well done. You're like kind of like, I wish this was part of a better film. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I just and then it's completely ruined because it's obviously like a montage of him looking for a job, and then the job that he finds is you know being a uh, I don't know D lesbianizer basically. <laughs> God, I, I really hated the indie like a lot. Mm, me too. Just felt so like um, it felt like he, he wanted it to be sort of utopian, right? Mm. But uh, it just was like. Why on earth would would these women accept them into his into their life? Into it's like life. you can kind of rationalize the lingering feelings that his ex girlfriend might have towards him, and her ability to still be sexually attracted to him. But the idea that her lesbian partner, who was always resistant to the idea, suddenly decides to like kiss Anthony Mackie and agree to be part of a polyamorous relationship and bring up this oh, kid, these kids. I mean, the, 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 the scene where she's like, uh, I tried three times to... to I mean, that's just not how fucking Stephen works. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. But I, I was just like, it was so dumb. I was like getting a really angry, actually, at that point. Where she, like, <laughs> decides to have sex with them the old-fashioned way to get... It's just, like, so dumb. <laughs> what, what did you think of the uh, John Turturro scenes in this movie? I really enjoyed that <laughs> random plot element. And John Turturro, I, I like, it was so odd. He, he he does like a whole monologue from The Godfather. Yeah, yeah. It really just felt like you know Spike Lee is friends with John Turturro, and it was like just gonna come in and do like nothing for for an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> like I feel like this could have been an any Spike Lee movie, and he just like chose to include it in this one. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder. I I would be interested to know like how the screenplay came together. Hmm. Because there are definitely parts of it that just feels like he's reading like a magazine article to you. And also, I really didn't understand. I mean, they have that whole scene where it's like, you know, he hate me, she hate me, and I was just like, Whoa. oh, that was so confusing. Just... Like it's based on a real thing, but it's not very yeah. well explained in the film. I, I was just, I was so confused why this it became the movie title too. You yeah, know? yeah, I definitely. This is this is like a two and a half to three star for me. Yeah, yeah. It's right down the middle. I don't know. Alright, uh, let's move on to bonus features then. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features. 
All right, so I watched uh, between this episode and the last one that we did bonus features on, which was, Jesus Christ, what was the last one we did bonus features on? My earliest film that I haven't talked about goes back to the 14th of December. Okay. So I think, okay, I got Uncut Gems, which we're going to do an episode on, so I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, despite the fact that I rated it on last letterbox, but who cares? Uh, we watched Star Wars The Last Jedi on the 20th of January. Still great. I watched the Trin T. Min Ha film, A Tale of Love, uh, which I enjoyed, but was kind of frustrated in that typical experimental film way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw the recently anointed uh, disaster film of the moment, Cats, uh, which I did not disenjoy. <laughs> That's not a word. I did not unenjoy. Uh, there are some moments of really bizarre surrealist pleasure to be had in this um even if a lot of it is pretty boring there's one scene that i have not been able to stop thinking about where the cats in this movie have human hands okay and human feet Mm -hmm. and human faces yeah um and there's one um amazing musical sequence where uh this one of the characters releases a bunch of trained beetles okay and the camera zooms down to show you this line of beetles and they're all human beings too done in the same way as the cats it's mm-hmm. really weird uh, and i was really enjoy- i really enjoyed that i thought it was so bizarre and off-putting that i enjoyed it <laughs> um but most movies pretty boring the music's Okay, I guess. I don't know. So, that's Cats. It's not a disaster, I don't think. Um, it ha- it, you can definitely get some pleasure out of it. Uh, mm. uh, then I rewatched uh, on the very... The, the first film I watched in the new year. Setting the, new, the year off on the right foot is a little movie that we talked about on the show called Clifford, uh, which I think you and I could both agree is the perfect film. In every way. Yep. Uh, then I watched... Uh, yesterday I watched about four films, so buckle up. Uh, wow. I finished... Actually, I finished, uh, I finished the uh, Safdie Brothers' um, Daddy Long, Long Legs, their first feature length, mm. uh, which What'd I enjoyed for what it is. Uh, it, was, it was okay. It was, like, good-ish. I don't really like this sort of, like, um, I don't know, kind of mumblecore-adjacent... Um, New York indie film. Yeah. And from what I gather, like, basically other films have a pretty similar plot, which is just a, about a man making terrible decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and this one's so different. Um, but it has a pretty good central performance. Uh, it does feel a little formless and long, but I think it, it, it definitely has its enjoyable bits. Um, okay. Uh, and then yesterday I also uh, watched Roger Corman's The Little Shop of Horrors. Mm. Uh, which is charming, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, slight, um, and apparently he shot it in like four days, so, <laughs> which is kind of Yeah, crazy. that account is disputed, and the amount uh, of money and stuff, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's true with everything that Roger Corbin has done. But fairly uh, short. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's pretty enjoyable. It's really, you know, odd. Yeah. <laughs> it's got some good performances, and it's just some funny bits. Uh, I watched the Trollenberg Horror, a.k.a. The Crawling Eye, 
which mm. is a Mystery Science Theater 3000 movie, which yeah. I actually thought, thought was kind of a, a good film. Not It was a good film, but it does have a really gross and interesting creature effect, so I'll give it that. Um, yeah, so that's it. Cool. First film on my docket is a little film called 3615 Code Pierre Noel, also known as Deadly Games, Dial Code Santa Claus, Game Over, and Hide and Freak. Uh-huh. <laughs> which is, is a bizarre pre-Home Alone, Home Alone style film. Mm. But with genuine violence and genuine menace but also with the veneer of being a kind of kids film it's it's really weird but it's kind of great it's french right it's french yeah there was an issue where the, the filmmakers actually threatened legal action against home alone that's funny but it has like a great performance by the creepy santa claus guy mm. i'll have to watch that if it's available it's, it's worth watching if you can find it yeah i think it was on uh, this horror streaming service that I subscribe to. So it has a great bit where it's like, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore when, um, the evil guy first comes to the house and within like two seconds, he's killed the dog by <laughs> stabbing it with a spoon <laughs> through its throat. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> That's great. So yeah. Uh, we didn't even talk you about that bit in particular, obviously. Shut up. <laughs> um, we didn't even talk about all the dogs eating people in, in Quintet. Yeah, yeah, that was great. I, I enjoyed that. It's, of course he did. Yeah, keep on, keep on going. I also watched uh, Beyond the Seventh Door. Do you know what that Horror is? Film Beyond the nope. Green Door. Oh, nope. The uh, the Fritz Log film. Nope. Uh, I don't know what it is. You know that Canadian. Uh, straight-to-video exploitation movement in the 80s, whatever it's called. No, but... It's got a, sure. There's a term for it, whatever. Yeah, I can buy it. This is part of that, um, mm. and it's directed by... Wait, let me just check their nationalities. I think the, the star and the director are, like, Polish or something. But it was made in Canada. But let me just make sure I get the nationality correct. Bum, 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 bum. Just talk amongst yourself. No. Oh, Yugoslavia. So I think they're. I think the star and the director are both um, expats of Yugoslavia. The <laughs> well, everyone's an expat of Yugoslavia now. The direct. Yeah, that's true. The director um, is now an usher. So there's like some little featurette where he's just showing you around the cinema that he's cleaning up. Who's apparently also written like 400 books and he seems like kind of a nutcase. And the star, the star is like this kind of terrible actor, but who has like a weird charismatic presence, maybe not charismatic, but he has a presence. I think people would compare this to The Room if they watched it. Mm. It's definitely more competent than that. Mm. Um, it has the funniest sex scene I've seen in some time, which <laughs> I won't spoil for a, you. Uh, it's definitely a, a recommendation in my eyes. So. Um, and 
it's basically like an escape room movie. So it's, you know, a guy who's been released from jail and uh, he, he convinces his girlfriend to help him rob the mansion of the rich guy she works for or something. And they end up being trapped by the rich guy and he, like, communicates with them over speaker and says, you need to, make, you need to solve the puzzle of this room to get to the next section. So it's just like that, the whole film. Okay. It's worth watching. Very, very silly. Um, I watched The Bad News Bears. Speaking of The Bad News Bears. Now we talked about that earlier. Hmm. Or maybe we didn't, depending on the edit. <laughs> you possibly talked about that earlier. Um, and that's kind of like a familiar story, maybe not so much at the time, of like a layabout. Everyone knows what the fucking Bad News Bears is. I didn't really. It's not, it's not a big thing here. Past his prime uh, ex-sports star who reforms a layabout team or something. You know, it's one of those sports movies, but it's pretty well executed. And I like the way that it doesn't just simply make him completely redeemed by the end or even that much of a good coach. It's good stuff. And Walter Matthau is always great. I watched a film that you've seen by Philippe de Rocca. Ah. King of Hearts. King of Hearts. I watched this at my brother's house, and I was pretty tired, and I found it kind of unbearable <laughs> to get to. <laughs> like, they're fucking just singing and dancing in this stupid carnival music for, like, most of the film. It like had barely. some stuff I really liked, but like it was kind of... Kind of tedious. I might need to like watch that when I'm not so tired. I barely remember it. I saw it at a theater, probably on actual film too. Yeah. Probably a better way to yeah. see it. Yeah, but I barely remember it. So for some reason, I give it four stars. I don't remember why. I wondered that as well. I was like, wow. Really? <laughs> uh, I watched Executive maybe, Koala. Maybe maybe I just didn't want to. I, I didn't want to disappoint you, Dad. Yeah. I watched yeah. Executive Koala, which is a bizarre Japanese film about an executive who is a koala. Mm-hmm. And when I started watching this with no prior knowledge of what it was, I thought it was just going to be one of those Japanese curios that people like to laugh at. Like, look what these crazy Japanese people are doing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's very much a self-aware, absurdist satire and parody. Yeah. And it's really enjoyable. It's on YouTube. It's worth watching. Mm. Good stuff. I watched Midnight Run uh-huh. purely because Charles Grodin is in it of and Clifford Fame. The greatest actor of all time. I think we can agree on that. We can agree on that. Um, which is why it's a bit disappointing to watch him in Midnight Run. Even though he's good, he's not playing like a traditional Charles Grodin style asshole character. So I don't think he's quite at his best even if he's perfectly fine for the role. Obviously, the apotheosis of his, his career is the twin peaks of Clifford and the uh, Heartbreak Kid. And the Heartbreak Kid, yeah. and But he's also great in a smaller role in Ishtar. Mm. Never seen it, so... Um, and Beethoven, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. So this is Robert De Niro's first foray into a lighter style of film, a comedic-leaning film, 
which is the direction he wanted to go, the tail end of the 80s. And he's continued to go up until today. Yep. I think he's he's pretty much always terrible when he's in this type of comedic role. Mm. I mean, he's more of a straightforward character in Midnight Run, but he's supposed to be kind of quippy and a bit funny, and that doesn't really quite work with the vibe that De Niro brings to his characters. Mm. There's sort of an inescapable intensity that doesn't make him ever seem carefree. Mm. And sometimes he exploits that in the context of comedies, like Meet the Parents or whatever, where he's supposed to yeah, be that the, tough the guy. But, film, Meet the Parents. But around it, you know, is, is the comedy. But whatever. And uh, it's not that good of a film at all. It seems like the quintessential dad movie, the sort of thing you'd watch on the day after Thanksgiving, which is a thing I don't celebrate. People, people really love that film. But yeah, it's disappointing. I was hoping for a nice, light-hearted Charles Grodin flick, but it's no Clifford. But what is? Finally, I watched one of your favourite films of all time, The Mule. <laughs> you know what? Wow. I agree. It's it's pretty great. Yes, that's right. That's right, motherfucker. I think um, his. Uh, Clint Eagle's performance is really good. Yeah, I agree. And I know that there's he has some issues drawing out good performances from his cast or consistent performances from his cast, given his quick working methods. Yeah. One take, Clint. And there's a particularly it. like a bizarrely awful performance by Diane Weist in this. Not Diane Weist. Is it Diane Weist? No. No, it's what's her name? Weist. I don't remember. Weist. <sighs> Yeah, it is Diane Weist. Yeah. Um, she's hilariously bad, and she's a good actor. Uh, I don't, like, there's I a scene really in which she, he's, like, comforting her at her bedside, and she's supposed to be having difficulty breathing and speaking. But it sounds so ludicrous, the way her lines are delivered. It's the sort of thing that you would, like, figure out over, like, a few takes or something. But Clint was like, yeah, let's, that's it. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go make the 1570 to Paris. And um, <laughs> the way he just makes these films to, like, excuse uh, elder racism <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, and that just to, like, give him some license to... <laughs> Say racial slurs, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Say racial slurs and homophobic slurs. But I don't think that that's what he's doing per se. But it's kind of funny no, to speculate that that is. But I do. I really like the scene where he meets the dykes on bikes. Yeah. And they're like, bye, old <laughs> so man. Weird. And he says, bye, dykes. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. Um, and I found this genuinely moving by the end. Even yeah, though it's like the, on a screenplay level, it's kind of a rote story to some degree. But I think it's yeah. made really handsomely. <laughs> did, you like the, uh, did you like the know. country song that played over the end credits? Which was? Don't let the old man in. <laughs> That's the only line I remember. Mm. <laughs> it's probably like Toby Keith or someone like that. There is something undeniable about the way he puts a story together sometimes. Mm. That even yeah. when it's, you know, you know what it's trying to do, you can't yeah, deny that it's doing it. Yeah. And I think, I think this film is a, I mean, obviously there are the weird scenes where he says racial stories and stuff, but I think it has an interesting perspective on race to some degree. Hmm. And a thread of anti-authoritarian, anti-policing. Yeah. Which you might you would not expect just knowing, you know, Eastwood from his politics. Yeah. 
but someone could be a complicated artist and still be a terrible person. So, which is what makes the art more interesting what, in a way. Which is what which is what Clint Eastwood is. Yeah. <laughs> now you should insert part of his uh, chair speech right now, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not as good with a visual. I hope, I hope that when he dies, that's what the Oscars do for like the uh, in memoriam segment. <laughs> <laughs> An empty chair. <laughs> Would that be so funny? Yes. The mother- motherfucker's 89 years old. He, he released two films last year and one this year. Can you believe that? That's so crazy. What were the two films last year? Um... The- no, sorry, in twenty in two thousand eighteen. Yeah, and 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 uh, this fifty seventy to Paris. Was that two thousand eighteen? Yeah. Ah. Okay. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> How does he have that much energy? We we barely have enough energy to do this podcast every week. <laughs> I barely have enough time, energy to watch two movies every year. <laughs> <laughs> and fucking, you released Richard Joel this year. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. Are you gonna see that? Uh, it's already out of theaters, so... I don't know. I heard it was okay. Hmm. Kathy Bates got nominated for, uh, Best Supporting Actress, so... <sighs> I wonder if he will make another one. Do you think Do you think he uh, has it in him, in, in him to make one more movie? Yeah. I feel like The Mule should have just been his last movie. It definitely feels like a last movie, you know what I mean? Hmm. It really feels like he's, like, he should have just died before it premiered or something like that. Um... Anyway... Uh, let's think. All right, so no other bonus features. No. Don't let the old. Could you please uh, use use the? Uh, I think it's Toby Keith. Uh, song from the Mule as the exit music for this episode. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, I'll do my own cover of it. <laughs> perfect. But the <laughs> but the entire song, not just a snippet. Of course. Okay, great. great. Don't let the old man in I wanna leave this alone Can't leave it up to him He's knocking on my door And I knew all my life That someday it would end Get up and go outside Don't let the old man in Many moons I've lived My body's weathered and worn Ask yourself how old you'd be If you didn't know the day you were born Try to love And stay close to your friends Toast each sundown with wine Don't let the old man in Ask yourself how old you'd be 
If you didn't know the day you were born When he rides up on his horse You feel that cold bit of wind Look out your window and smile Don't let the old man in Look out your window and smile Don't let the old man in Our friend home.